Hello, and welcome to Crosswinds, a podcast series produced by the Vizient Research Institute. I'm Tom Robertson, the executive director of the Institute, and I'm glad to be back with an old friend for another uh, bit of conversation. David Entwistle, the chief executive officer for Stanford Healthcare, is back with us again. And David, thanks for spending a little bit more time with us. Tom, it's great to be back, and I appreciate the invitation. I enjoyed our time last time. We got into so many exciting uh, topics, so look forward to chatting more. Let me take you back to Madison, Wisconsin, for a, for for just a moment, where where you spent some time at the University of Wisconsin, and and uh, an area of the country that uh, is for those that aren't familiar with it, that's characterized by tra- big traditional multi-specialty group practices. Uh, you know, the Mayo Clinic, the Marshfield Clinic, Gunderson, the Dean Clinic, the University of Wisconsin's medical staff. Um, is there something special about a genuine multi-specialty group practice that you think uh, spills over into efficiency and, and efficacy? You know, I think one of the things that we saw at having those group practices is it's a collection of specialists. It's a collection of ideas, innovation, and things that really provide a mechanism of being able to, what I hope to say, is kind of a one-stop shop. Uh, you know, traditionally, our field of healthcare is, you know, a little bit more isolated, uh, a little bit more uh, myopic in terms of the way that we look at things. And one of the things I appreciated about that culture that was created there is we did have that collection of specialists that allowed us to be able to treat patients. And especially as you start to, we did some innovative work in what we were looking at in terms of populations and how do we start to deal with the whole healthcare of an individual as opposed to looking at those one-offs as they bounce around between specialists. That really gave us an advantage, I will say, and it allowed us in unique ways to be able to do some things in providing that care working with our health plans. That market's also very dominated by uh, some large payers uh, and a little bit isolated in terms of uh, others coming in. And so you almost have to do that to be competitive and almost had to have those groups uh, in order to really manage the care and even the cost uh, as, as we were looking at the way we compete. You know, we've, we've done research in uh, system uh, performance, and one of the things that we discovered when we looked at Medicare data was that patients who got the preponderance of their care from one healthcare system, uh, if you if they were if you had a cohort of individuals who were chronically and 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 chronically ill and had complex diagnoses, uh, those that got the preponderance of their care from one system, if you compared them to those who bounced around as you as you refer to it, and I do too, um, the the bouncing around uh, was considerably more resource intensive and 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 more expensive. And then we looked uh, into um, what we refer to as intrasystem variation. And we, as you might recall, a year or so ago, we looked at uh, the variation of discretionary utilization, both between health systems and within health systems. And we we found this troubling intrasystem variation. What do you think we need to do as, as a group of providers? What do you think we need to do to reduce avoidable variation? Well, as you just pointed out, and actually, Tom, it was some of your work that we looked at and looking at that, one of the biggest cost drivers in that is the variation in care. That uh, inability that we have on a consistent basis to apply that 
technology, apply the treatment patterns, uh, even across physicians in our own organizations. Uh, we did a lot of work when I was at University of Utah to look at how do we actually compare what our individual faculty are providing on a same diagnosis or same DRG. And there was monumental difference in that. And creating, and I'll say, you know, an answer to what you're talking about, the ability to get at that, to reduce the variation uh, that is truly avoidable variation. In some cases, there's truly differences in the way people react to treatment that causes the variation or what's needed to get them there. But creating transparency of the data was monumental for us. Being able to meet with faculty, share with them data that actually showed uh, the way they treated the same diagnosis of the same patient, how many minutes in the OR they were spending, how many MRIs they were taking, how much lab test, what was the follow-up care. So, you know, there's so much to the way that variation is. And if you can truly extrapolate out what's the differences with comorbidities, the differences in the way they treat, did they have an out? versus outcome uh, and start to really look at the variation. But you have to look at large data sets there. You have to be able to say that this is something that's truly a difference, uh, truly something that's controllable, uh, that actually you can get out. And there's large opportunities to create not only a better quality experience, but a lower cost. And I'll tell you, to be able to make movement in this, you can't just go after the cost. To reduce variation and say this is something that's better for the patient, you have to show that it's a better outcome and start with the quality side or just won't be successful. That's that's a great that's a great insight. And I, I asked the question in in part because uh, because I, I I really think back to your work at Utah and uh, and how and how you did move the needle and uh your your insight is is spot on it, if it's about money uh we won't get attention if it's about if it's about doing the right thing uh we'll we'll get we've got a much cleaner line of sight well and you know what was interesting that was not an insight tom that we had right off the bat <laughs> you know and initially one of the things um and, you know, the Affordable Health Care Act creates, you know, there's always something, you know, whether it's the Balanced Budget Act, Affordable Health Care Act, even really going back to DRGs, there's some always uh, catastrophe that's going to, you know, uh, change our fundamental fortunes and, you know, make us bankrupt. Well, ACA was certainly one of those if you applied those pieces. But what we said is, how do we fundamentally make a change in the cost? And looking at some of the work that was coming out of the work actually you were doing, how do we make sure that that variation aspect, that we start with that? And that was something that our faculty were willing to do. But they said, but you don't have the data. You can't give me the information. And so we started with being able to do that. And then we got the data. But then to make the change, we had to say, how do we create, whether we called it the perfect encounter, whether we called it the best outcome, uh, once we started applying the data in that way, then we got the resonance and then the cost came down. You know, you just you made me think of something uh, when when you mentioned the the payment system and and uh, the Affordable Care Act and that sort of a thing. Let me uh, let me ask you to to take yourself to a place that hasn't happened yet. I, imagine um, imagine a private health system, not not the British National Health Service, a private health system, but one with all payer rate regulation, where. Um, Medicare and Medicaid or Medi-Cal in your case pay more. Uh, commercial insurance pays less, but 
but all of the payers pay the same. Uh, tertiary medical centers and high acuity centers get paid uh, more or higher prices than lower acuity facilities, um, just reflective of their cost and, and their and their resources. But again, all payers, public and private, pay the same. How would you think differently from, a, I'm going to ask you to think about it operationally first and strategically second. What would you think um, differently about from an operational standpoint if it was an all-payer rate regulation environment? And then later, what would you think about strategically differently? You know, Tom, I don't know that it would necessarily change the way operationally. Um, um, uh, This isn't just, you know, speaking to the choir, but I mean, every patient that comes in is an equal patient. We will treat all of them the same way. It's something that actually allows us to be able to, you know, take out of the physician's hand, you know, the necessarily the way or who the payer is or non-payer in some cases so that everybody gets treated the same and that care that's provided. Now, I will tell you that sometimes it's easier to get access if you have insurance as opposed to not. And so from that standpoint, uh, it would make that easier. But at the end of the day, the patients do get treated. We do provide the care uh, that's needed. And so from that standpoint, it perhaps wouldn't change uh, as much. I think strategically, that's where I think we would start to get into some nuances. Think about how much time now we spend trying to create mechanisms to, you know, be attractive to payers, be attractive to those commercial insurance companies that actually are funding the deficit in what we're seeing from the federal payers or those who aren't uh, coming in. Uh, There are nuances there that that as collectively make a difference in the way that we would think going forward in how we provide care. For those listening that are in the academic setting, we know that Fundamentally, the margins that we produce uh, are different in academics because they are funding the research and teaching mission. They are funding those shortfalls in other areas where we know this is the important aspect of who we are, what we're providing, what we're doing for the mission of healthcare and even uh, for uh, the world in general in terms of the innovation that comes out of us. Uh, And so we would have to think uh, in terms of the payers and the mechanisms to do that, how do we make sure we can continue to fund that uh, in spreading that across as we do now? Uh, Now we have to balance between the payers that uh, uh, we have deficits on. That would make it easier, quite frankly, because a patient is a patient from a patient standpoint. Uh, or from a payer standpoint, would be different. So um, operationally, maybe not as much, uh, but certainly from a strategy point, it would be very different. So David, you you came up uh, through the ranks in kind of the traditional operations track. You were a chief operating officer and then a chief executive officer. Um, how do you think the uh, traditional succession plan might be different for the next generation, given a couple of things. One, just new technologies, uh, and then maybe some post-pandemic realities like remote work and and just uh, virtual care and those sorts of things. How how do you think that that the trajectory of a young person's career, a, a generation or two behind us, uh, might be different than it was for for you? Tom, as we think about that, I think the traditional track, the way the managers and leaders are evolving, is much different. 
Let me give you a couple examples. In fact, uh, recently uh, we had one of our administrative fellows that came out of uh, what was a traditional uh, fellowship experience and actually took a leadership role in what we were doing on virtual care, actually standing up, helping us create virtual care platforms, not only in our own organizations, but in a separate organization uh, in terms of creating that connectivity. At the same time, we had another fellow that actually came out and began work uh, in what we were calling our catalyst program that actually is an innovation engine for our organization uh, to look at new ideas, new technologies coming out of our faculty and a way of applying that. And we're even looking at how do we apply some of the fellow experiences and young leaders into ambulatory environments because we know here, certainly at Stanford, over 50% of the net income that we make actually is from our ambulatory areas. And so I'm encouraging our students to actually gain ambulatory experience as opposed to thinking of some of those traditional uh, mainline hospital functions that they may have gone into before. And so I do think the way the industry is evolving and the way that we're looking at these young professionals in management uh, is going to be much different in the future. So let's let's go from a heavy conversation like like that to to something a little lighter if you weren't in healthcare what would you like to do professionally <laughs> oh now would it have to be something that my wife would agree to because that would probably <laughs> change a little bit you know uh, not, not at all and it doesn't have to be it doesn't necessarily have to be anything that you're good at like uh, you know i might want to play golf but i'm but nobody would pay me to do it all right well you know uh porsche racing team you know professional ice climber downhill mountain bike racer you know all the things that my wife would say no to uh probably would be high on the list but you know, uh, I, I appreciate my roughly 30 years of marriage and want to stay that way. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's a good question. I think probably what I enjoy the most and what I would probably want to spend my time doing uh, is actually teaching. Um, to be able to be uh, a professor, to be able to share, uh, especially in the healthcare field, uh, I would love to be able to have that opportunity to teach. And one of the you know joys that I have is interacting with students and the fellows and the many people uh, that we try to train is our next generation of leaders. And um, anything in that area, you know, I love finance, love uh, what we're doing and focus on the patient experience. But yeah, I, that probably would be where I'd head, uh, given that the other ones would be uh, nixed by my wife. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's one of the blessings of being in, in, in an academic setting, don't you think? That, uh, that just that, that kind of innate intellectual curiosity that, that exists in, in many of the places that you've been. Well, and as you know, how much you learn, you know, whenever we think, oh, you know, gosh, you know, we're doing things the same old way and we're getting stale, you know, just get around a student, that young excitement, those new ideas. And one of the things I challenge our fellows to do is even in our executive meetings to say, I expect you to throw in your comments. Give us a question. Tell us what the new learning is. What is the, you know, the latest from uh, what you're learning in academia? And it really just challenges and I think uh, uh, keeps the ideas and the way your organization is. is innovative and fresh. So it's exciting. Well, you know, I, I could literally sit and chat with you all afternoon, but I know you've got some important work to do. And it would be um, wrong of me not to pause for a moment uh, on a serious note, and on behalf of the country, uh, to thank you and and your colleagues uh, in medicine across the country for everything that 
you've been doing and, uh, and are continuing to do uh, during this crisis. You're a great, great pal, and, and thanks a million for being with us to, to launch this new series of conversations. Well, Tom, the pleasure was mine, and uh, being able to sit down with a friend, uh, even if in a virtual environment, I will look forward and long for the day when we do it together. So I appreciate that opportunity and just being able to share a few thoughts. I love this field. I love this industry, and it's at the end of the day, it is about the care we provide for the patients. So always a pleasure to talk about that anytime. Well, thanks, and it's, it's a better industry for having you in it. And thank you for listening in. We hope you've enjoyed these conversations and found them thought-provoking. And we look forward to welcoming you back for a future Crosswinds. I'm Tom Robertson. Until then. <laughs>